Hello, I'm Laura Shavin, and this is the Offcuts Draw. Welcome to the Offcuts Draw, the show that looks inside a writer's bottom drawer to find the bits of work they never finished, had rejected, or couldn't quite find a home for. We bring them to life, hear the stories behind them, and learn how these random pieces of creativity paved the way to subsequent success. My guest this week is writer David Quantic, winner of multiple BAFTAs for Harry Hill's TV Burp and an Emmy for Veep. Neil Gaiman called him smart, funny and unique. Caitlin Moran says he has a medical condition whereby he literally cannot be unfunny. His television CV also includes the media spoofs The Day to Day and Brass Eye and political satire The Thick of It, as well as writing for comedy legends such as Mitchell and Webb, Graham Norton and Danger Mouse. He began his career as a music writer at the NME, where he coined the phrase Pop Will Eat Itself, which the chart-topping band took as their name. In his 30-year career, there isn't a genre or style he hasn't successfully turned his hand to, from journalism, sketch comedy, sitcoms and novels, to theatre plays, TV drama, short stories, cartoons, there's even a comic book in the mix. David Quantic, you are the Swiss army knife of the writing world. Welcome to the show. Hi, Laura. Thank you very much. What a lovely intro. (laughs) So my first question, as always, is what does your offcuts folder, this bottom drawer of yours, look like in real life? Is it an actual bottom drawer? No, it's probably a load of computer disks. Um, The odd thing in a drawer, a little red suitcase, a little blue suitcase and some fires in rubbish dumps across the country. (laughs) I like the idea of the little red suitcase and the little blue suitcase. Sounds very cute. Little matching pair. Yeah, they're cute suitcases. You've got to keep things in cute suitcases. Right, well, let's dive straight in with your first offcut. Can you tell us what it's called, what genre it was written for, and when you wrote it? Yeah, this is The Junkies. It was a pilot for a TV sitcom, and it was written in the year 2000. We're in an unglamorous London high-rise, inside one of the flats. We hear a voiceover. Sal and Big Al are junkies. When they moved in, this was a lavishly furnished flat. Sal and Big Al are sitting on the floor in an empty room. Al is twanging one note repeatedly on a guitar. They live here with their best friend Jackie, another junkie. Jackie enters. Where's my chicken? This morning I stole a lovely frozen chicken from Quicksave and someone's nicked it. Someone stole my chicken. Jackie is from Wales. All Jackie wants is to be loved. He got last pick of the bedrooms. We cut to Jackie sitting in a cupboard. Jackie speaks to the camera. I used to be a teacher, I think. Well, basically, I've narrowed it down. I remember talking to kids, or I was a kid myself. Do you know, I'm the first person in my family to become a heroin addict. I would never be a prosy. No way, I would never, ever be a prosy. I'd be a prosy, but I'd never give my bum cherry. Never. No way. Heroin's not addictive. That's what they want you to think. Do you know there's never, ever been a single medical test that proves that heroin is addictive? You've got to have respect. Respect and heroin. Jackie's decided the old man next door is a thief. Jackie opens the door to the communal hallway and shouts at his neighbour. Oi! Oi, Tosser, where's my chicken? I beg your pardon? My chicken! Have you lost something? Yes, I've lost my chicken, you bloody old bollock. Where is it? Well, I don't know. Where did you last have it? Jackie storms off to confront his flatmates, who are sitting on the floor smoking in their empty lounge. 
It's one of you, isn't it? You've had my chicken. Look, chill out, man. Pull up a... Sit down. I don't have your chicken. I'm uh, I'm a vegetarian. I eat toast. And I take heroin, which, interestingly, is the foodstuff. Sal is from Kent. She was the first girl at her school to spend all her trust fund on heroin. Her father is the Bishop of Leicester. We cut to Sal in her room talking to camera. Most people can't handle heroin, um, but because of my education, I can. I think it's one of my favourite things. Um, I, th- I think I thought it would be like Marion Faithful and the Rolling Stones. I thought they'd probably tie me to a radiator, pump me full of drugs and bugger me for about three days. Uh, but actually, I think they probably just wanted someone to do the cooking. So, The Junkies, you wrote this with your then-writing partner Jane Bussman in 2000. This is before The Office came out and popularised that fake documentary style, so it was already fairly groundbreaking. But my first question has to be, a sitcom about heroin junkies, why? Well, Jane and I had a little office um, in the centre of London, and it was also quite near a methadone clinic, so every day we would see junkies going into the methadone clinic, coming out of the methadone clinic, going to get some more heroin, having got some more heroin. And we saw them all the time. And it was quite fascinating because they lived in this tiny little capsule bubble world, which is basically the centrepiece of any sitcom. Any sitcom features a small amount of people who live in a tiny world, which is hermetically sealed. And this was sealed for us when one day we saw a man and a woman walking down the street with a very big man, and they were junkies, and one of them said to the big man, so what's the plan today, Big Al? Of course, the answer was to get some heroin. (laughs) And we just became a bit obsessed, and we thought, this has not been done before, still hasn't been done. And so we wrote a brilliantly funny sitcom script got some brilliantly funny actors and put them in the pilot. Yes, you did. The original cast was Sally Phillips, Peter Serafinowicz and Pete Bainham, wasn't it? That's right, with a guest appearance from Kevin Eldon and a deleted scene with Simon Munnery. I mean, we we were signed to the talkback agency at the time. We were working on all the talkback shows. So we knew, well, we knew some of the funniest people in the world. And it was a great opportunity and with the help of the cast who contributed some material We made a really funny pilot that cost £5,000, which most of which was insurance. We had a really good crew. Everyone worked for free. A great producer, director called Jess Search. And of course, nothing happened. That's quite unusual because this is the days before YouTube. Now everybody's uploading their stuff. But in those days, nobody made their own, especially something that cost as much as £5,000. Very few people were able to make their own pilot. So that was quite groundbreaking in itself. And isn't it the first internet sitcom? Is that right? Yeah, we we definitely did that because broadband was coming. I'd never heard of it, but Jane had. So we created a website and we put the first episode on it and we did get a million hits in a week. And our joke was that most of them were the same person trying to download it again and again because <laughs> a 20 minute download then was very time consuming. But it's I still have it. I still have the original tapes and one day I will get them put up in better nick because it's extraordinary. No one else had done it. First sitcom pilot. Thanks, Channel 4. May you rot in hell for your lack of vision. No, it was a great <laughs> moment. and We're very proud of it. What would have happened if it had been commissioned? How far had you got with it? Did you have further episodes plotted? Do you remember any of the storylines? 
Well, I remember there was an episode where they followed a dog because we took it to Baby Cow, Henry Norman and Steve Coogan, and they were interested for a while. And I remember Steve Coogan saying there should be an episode where they follow a dog. <laughs> and we did write a second episode for which we were paid, ironically, £5,000, which was great. So, ah, we're all so old now. But yeah, it was a brilliant. I'm still mildly annoyed. It was a great show and it should have gone somewhere. Is there any chance you might be able to do something with it now, do you think? I'm more interested in hunting down the people who refuse to commission it, you know, and getting on with the rest of my life. It would be a brilliant show even now, Mm. though I'm not sure how many junkies of the age of our current cast there are still living. (laughs) Very good point. Okay. All right. Time for your next offcut. Tell us what it is. This is called Britpop Forecast, and it's a sketch for a Radio 4 series called One, and it was written in 2006. And now, with the time coming up to ten years later, it's the Britpop Forecast. Oasis, don't look back in anger, easterly. Supergrass, young, clean, running green. Sleeper, what was that one, fading rapidly. Blur, this is a low, appropriate, ironically. Manic Street Preachers, still going, amazingly. Menswear, reforming, gales of laughter, later. That was a sketch you wrote for your own Radio 4 series called One that wasn't used in the end. Now, the subject matter reveals your in-depth knowledge of music and the fact that you started your writing career as a journalist for the music paper, the NME. How did you get that job? I used to read the NME. I just finished doing a degree. I couldn't get a job. And I wrote to the editor of the NME and told him that it was a very boring (laughs) magazine. There had been a review of Bob Seger the American airbrushed rock star who I now quite like, but then thought it shouldn't be in the enemy. So I wrote to the editor and said, Bob Seger is not enough. And he very politely invited me in to do some reviews, which I did. I wrote for the enemy for a very, very long time, where I met a writer called Stephen Wells, who was a brilliant writer. And we had a column in the enemy called Culture Vulture, And Amanda Yunucci read it and offered his writing work on his show On The Hour. And I've never looked back or forward since. How did you write together with somebody on a column? I can understand how people work together maybe on on drama or sitcom or whatever, but to actually write narrative, how does that work? Well, we're both quite egotistical people. And I would go to Stephen's house, um, which was essentially a semi-squat run by the SWP because the Socialist Workers' Party, to which Stephen belonged, had this huge network of rented properties that they had access to. So he lived in a huge house in Wembley. And I'd go around there and we sit at his computer and have a drink and do other things. And he would say what we write about. And I would say, I don't know, Kylie Minogue. So he would write a bit and then I would go, I want to have a go. (laughs) And we would make each other laugh quite often, which was not something I normally get into. But yeah, they were very, Stephen was a ranting poet, so he was very used to long, deranged monologues. And we worked together very well. We didn't have much in common, except that we were quite angry and quite like being annoying and were very funny. And you also, you reviewed gigs, albums, artists and stuff and interviewed artists. Um, Did you do that together as well? Was that just you on your own? That was just us on our own. Um, We didn't work together outside the comedy. And, yeah, outside the enemy column and writing stuff for Armando. And that was about it, really. And you also interviewed Freddie Mercury from Queen. 
didn't you? Yes. <laughs> that was fun. Um, flew to Hungary and there was a reception at the British Embassy. And I remember telling some people that Freddie Mercury wouldn't talk to the enemy because Queen and the enemy got on very badly. The enemy had been quite rude to him. They'd run a front cover. The cover line of which was a picture of Freddie Mercury and the words, is this man a prat? And it sort of went on from there. And halfway through the evening, Queen arrived and people were circulating. And Freddie Mercury came up to me and said, I understand you've been telling people I won't talk to you. I was obviously quite thrown by this. And he invited me to dinner. So I went to dinner with Queen and didn't do an interview, but I did spend a lot of time talking to Freddie Mercury. And that was great fun. And while I still don't like Queen... I liked him, even though he did, on the flight back to London, drop a lit cigarette on the carpet of the floor of the aeroplane. Huh. And I remember everybody thinking, oh, God, we're all going to burn to death in an aeroplane because of Freddie Mercury. <laughs> so that was fun. Right, time for your next off-cut. Tell us about this one. This is called No Dolls for Devereaux, and it's part of a novel based on a short story I had published in City Limits magazine, and it was written in 1982. New York, New York. So good they used to call it New Amsterdam. Streets sprawling drunken with skyscrapers tucked like the Beano under their fire hydrant hairy armpits. Night, when Lennox Vendetta would stroll out on his tedious feet to some salmonella of an east side burger joint. But tonight, there were no burger kings for the acapella king of Impetigo. Vendetta was off to the NYPD records department to check up on a missing person. They called her Nancy Bromide, and it was her name. And any sign of her would be in the department's lunchtime disco of a filing system. And soon he was there, settled with the half-life of his illiteracy before a big file marked Disappearances Present. It was the yellow pages of separation, photo after inaccurate photo. Vendetta's raspberry ripple eyes slithered across the names. Manny Hatband, Mark Fergal Sharkey, Hotchkiss Devereaux. Suddenly, a jolt of recognition hitchhiked up Vendetta's spine and got into the guest list of his brain. Hotchkiss Devereaux. God, he thought, I know that name. There had been a conversation two nights back on the subway. Vendetta had sat, finger clamped palmlessly between his teeth, when his Windolino-Rama ears caught someone's drift. And it was the kind of drift they don't sell in laundromats. Two men, one nattily dressed in an aubergine blazer and Oxford bags, the other some kind of beatnik in his what's-new pussycat turtleneck and cheap-like-gum shades. They were talking about a third man with almost tomato relish. I tell you, Armbrister, said one, with the cliché of the modern radio, Devereaux knows too much. Waste him. No dice, Yorge, said the other, dandruff troubling his shoulders like an alpine conscience. We don't go in for the death stuff. You're too soft, Armbrister. We waste Devereaux. We get to wear the party hats. Right, so this is the earliest example we could find of your work, probably around your university time, I think. So how old were you when you first got interested in writing, would you say? I used to write little bits. My mum had been a secretary in a teacher's training college and she gave me her manual typewriter. She must have upgraded. And I was raised, like a lot of people my age, on the Goon Show books, um, on the Goodies books, and later on the Monty Python books. So big part of comedy for me was making the parodies, making things l looked like real letters and real scripts. Having a typewriter was the equivalent of having a super fast laptop in 1975 or so. <laughs> so I would type things. I'd write parodies for the school magazine. I didn't write much at university because the university magazine then was a bit 
uh, it was an irritating kind of rag mag thing run by a bunch of mates. So wasn't really interested in that. Mm. And then the, my last year at college, 81, 82, I started writing a parody of hard-boiled detective novels called Lennox Vendetta. That was the name of my detective. Mm. Sent one to City Limits magazine, which was a magazine started by members of the Time Out staff who left during a strike. It was very left-wing, very feminist, brilliant magazine. And they published one of the Lennox Vendetta stories. That was my first thing I got paid money for, 50 quid. Mm. And I was so excited, I wrote a whole novel based on Lennox Vendetta, which nobody liked. And I haven't read since then and was very surprised to hear its content today. Did you sustain a whole book? Because we were only given a, a, that short clip. Did you sustain the whole novel in that style? Yes. Um, I have no memory. I remember writing it, but I have no memory of it. I remember there was, a character, there was an evil gangster called Granny Stalingrad, <laughs> which probably gives you an idea of the humour of the book. But I enjoyed writing it. Others may disagree. But a lot of your writing has been comedy and goons and the goodies. Were they your comedy heroes? Are they the people you were hoping to become? I don't think I ever hoped to become anything like that. But yeah, I was a 70s teenager. My parents had bought a Dansett record player in the 60s, which had two goon show albums. And that kind of ruined me for things like Monty Python, which I just thought, well, I've heard this, and I preferred the goons. Ooh. Maybe Monty Python were a bit too public school for me. Right. But yeah, the goons, Monty Python, I did love that. Faulty Towers. Mm-hmm. And the goodies, I was exactly the right age. I still love the goodies. Yes. Um, I've worked with Graham Garden since on the radio show One that we mentioned. Yeah. Absolute comedy heroes of mine. And I didn't think I could become... Any of those people, mostly because most of them had either been in World War Two, which I'd missed, or being members of the Footlight Society, which I'd also missed. Mm. So even though things were happening all around me, even though we'd had punk and we had the new alternative comedy scene, it didn't, nothing really occurred to me. I didn't think I was, I had no idea what I was going to be when I grew up, but I certainly didn't think I was going to be a comedy writer. But you studied law at university, not English or, or music. So did you plan to be a lawyer? Yeah, I, I suppose I must have done, but about a year into it, they said, oh, you've got to put your names down for the College of Law, the Solicitor's College, and I just suddenly thought, I'm not doing that. And that was like, oh, good, now I know what I don't want to be. But I was living in London. It was the days of student grants, so I wasn't paying. So basically, it was all I had to do was pass the exams and I could live in London for £23 a week, and that seemed a good deal. And then I pretty much panicked when I left college and died. <laughs> um, now, for your next offcut, tell us what we're going to hear now. This is The End of the World, and it's a scene from a TV script that I wrote in 1986. Oh, shut your face, Rosalind. How many people do you reckon are left then, John? Well, obviously, it's very hard to take a proper census sort of thing in the circumstances, but I've been wandering around a lot, and I think about 4% of the population. 4%? That's not much. It's more than enough for a bloody Tupperware party, Rosalind. How many people do you want? You see, most of the urban conurbations sort of thing have gone. Glasgow and London, obviously, and Cardiff. Can't see why the Russians wanted Cardiff. No, well, Cardiff I never cared for. I had a Welsh boyfriend once. He had moles all over the back of his neck. How do you know this? Well, we were quite intimate for a time. How do you know this, John? 
well, I've an inquiring mind, and I've sort of wandered around a lot of places. I had a bike for a while, but the tyres went, sort of thing. John, is there any news of the royals? Rosaline, There's bloody millions dead, and... Yes, so you keep telling me, Mary, but the royals are different, aren't they? Many people could cope with life after the bomb much more easily if they knew the royals were safe. They'll probably be in Australia somewhere, shipped off in a submarine with the government. Australia's nice in places. Perth's nice. Perth'll be nice for yachts. Yes, that's a very short piece which ends rather abruptly, but that's because there was only one page of it we could find. Dave, could you tell us a little bit more about it, the project? Yeah. I must have been thinking about being a comedy writer at this time because around this time, about a year later, I got a sketch on Spitting Image. That was my first televised work. Jeffrey Perkins was the producer, a legend of TV comedy and radio. Mm. But before that, I was trying things out. And I wrote a script called The End of the World, which oddly is about the end of the world and two or three characters, Mary Rawls and somebody else, having an adventure at the end of the world. It's John. And John, thank you, and Mary Rawls and John. And didn't know anybody in television, but I was a music journalist, so I sent it to Lenny Henry, who I'd interviewed for The NME, and he sent it back to me annotated. He went through every line and made a... a remark or comment and one of the comments I think he made was this is far too short for a play it was only about 10 to 15 minutes long but the thing that really encouraged me was I was round at my friend Kath's house watching television one night and I'd never thought I could be a writer for the reasons I've said before Mm. but we were watching something and she said this this whatever we were watching this is terrible you could do that you could do better than that and that was the thing that was a big help because it never occurred to me that I had to be just good enough. I was thought to be a writer, you had to be the best in the world at everything. But just the idea that I could be better than the rubbish that was on television at that minute was very liberating. It's like, well, that's on telly and that is abysmal. I'm not abysmal, so I deserve to be on television. It was a big confidence booster. Mm. And maybe the end of the world is part of that because some of it's funny and some of it's incoherent. There's a huge strand about... Ord Wingate, who was a general in World War II and used to wash himself with half a raw onion. I thought that was worth putting in. Right. Hi, this is Laura. Sorry to interrupt. But if you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe to the Off Cuts Draw wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five star rating, leave a review, tell your friends about it. All that stuff's really important for a brand new podcast like this. And you can visit offcutsdraw.com for more details about the writers and the actors and to find out about future live shows. Thanks for your support. Now back to the interview. You went on to work, as you said before, you started working with Armando Iannucci. Um, So you were sort of right in at the beginning of On the Hour, which uh, then became TV series The Day to Day, followed by Brass Eye, Jam, The Thick of It, all of which you were a writer on. Did you know back then that that particular dream team were going to create such a comedy empire? No, I mean, it's insane now that I was with them once and they were having a conversation about how many Oscar nominees had worked on the shows. And the answer is, I think, is it three? I think Armando Iannucci, Peter Bainham, who worked on Borat, and Patrick Marber. Oh, I forgot what he worked on. How embarrassing. Oh, yeah, one of his films, Closer. So 
Three of the writers on that show have been nominated for Oscars. Then you've got Steve Coogan, you've got uh, Chris Morris, you've got David Schneider, Herring and Lee, me and Stephen. I remember going to the first meeting and they were all there. and just thinking, what a bunch of losers. I'll, I'll do well out of this and they won't. But bizarre because, you know, in the 90s, they were the Python of the 90s without doubt. And even now, well, especially even now, they're all very big in comedy. And I still write for Armando. I wrote on Avenue 5, and hopefully I'm going back to that. So, yeah, that column that I did with Stephen Wells, it really did change my life because it got me onto the one radio show, which was the Fonz et Origo of about 30 years of British comedy. Sorry, the Fonz et Origo? The Fountain and Origin. Oh, right. Gosh, I've learned something. Thank you. I was going to say that the uh, the Armando Yanucci connection uh, then led you to write on Veep. Julia Louis-Dreyfus plays the vice president of the US and that programme, Veep, won you an Emmy Award. What was writing on an American show like as part of an American team compared to working on a British show? Well, it was quite smooth because I'd worked on the last series of The Thick of It and... While it's an American show, Armando clearly had a lot of freedom because there were no American writers at that point. The crew were American, but the directors were British. The producers were a mixture of American and British, but all the writers, Chris Addison, Will Smith, Ian Martin, Roger Drew, and so on and so on, were British. So you could write it, sit there, write it at home. You go to America and write it, but to be honest, you'd be writing in hotel rooms, so you could be anywhere, to be honest. Mm. You know, you could only really tell where you were by looking down and seeing what kind of plug socket there was in the room. <laughs> but it was an, an incredible experience because, yeah, making a TV programme is the same wherever you go. It's just cameras and long hours and bad coffee. But you're in a room with Julia Louis-Dreyfus and this extraordinary cast, including, at the end, Hugh Laurie. Yes, of course. With his American accent. So it was... It was amazing and they treat you very well and you get really nice gifts and aeroplanes and more than six people watch it, so that's nice. I'm a big fan of particularly Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Did you have much to do with her? Um, no, because I wasn't one of the main writers, but worked on stuff with her. And I just remember at the Emmys, I think we'd all had a drink. She'd probably had half a glass of champagne and I definitely had seven bottles. <laughs> I think I went up and put my arm around her, which she permitted. But yeah, the difference between working on American or British shows is that on a British show, you'll go, I know him when you watch an advert for B&Q. An American show, you're watching a Hollywood movie and you go, I know him. Oh, yes, I do that all the time. My kids go mad when I do that. Oh, thank God someone else does that. I thought I was just some weirdo. Everyone does it. Good. OK, tell us about your next offcut. My next offcut is a scene from a film script called No More Mr. Nice Guy, which I wrote in 2009. Interior, open top bus, day. Jim climbs the stairs to the top deck and looks around. The seats are full of tourists. Gloria sits at the back. Jim walks to the front of the bus and takes out a big sheaf of notes. There is a microphone attached to a speaker system. Jim turns on the mic and is about to speak when the bus lurches into motion. Staggering, Jim manages to stay upright, but drops the notes, which fly into the street below. Oh, so, uh, hello. Bonjour. All right, bonjour. Oh, bonjour. Uh, we are Walloons, not the same thing. W Walloons? 
Yes, we are. We are Dutch-speaking Belgians. And you don't really speak much English? No, we, we speak excellent English, unless you wish to proceed in Walloon. Yes! Bon Dieu! Bon Dieu! <laughs> Jim looks at Gloria. She looks away. As if made defiant, a determined look appears on Jim's face. Over on your right? Nothing. I said over on your right. The tourists look to their right. Gloria perks up. Thank you. Over on your right is the oldest building in the world. The oldest building in the world was built in 300 BC out of wood from a Viking longboat. Everyone is trying to see the imaginary building. And on your right... No, your left. No. Gloria gets up and indicates right, like an air hostess. She looks at Jim as if to say, go on. To your left now. Gloria indicates left. Is? Nothing but a jumble of office blocks. The National Gallery. Everyone looks at her. That is not the National Gallery. The National Gallery of? Robots. Robots? Robots? Robots. She mimes mechanical painting. Oh, that's right, yes. Every major painting ever painted of a robot or by a robot is in there. But if you look to the side, you will see the much more interesting... Hampton House. Yes, Hampton House, where William Hampton... No, William Hampton Shakespeare... The Bard of Avon. Yeah, him. William Shakespeare was knighted for services to industry by Queen Elizabeth II. First. First what? Elizabeth I. Yes, yes, Elizabeth I. He bows. Gloria pretends to knight him. Applause. Jim and Gloria, briefly united, are surprised and delighted. Right, now this piece has a very convoluted history, hasn't it? Because it started life as a... God knows. Um... I'm trying to remember the order. I think it started life as a radio sketch. Ah, okay. Now, it started life in a book called The Bitterness Diaries, which was about a man who developed two personalities, one to deal with work and one to deal with his love life. And in the book, he suddenly finds himself forced to become a tour guide on a tour of a city and make everything up. That book didn't go anywhere. So I salvaged the scene for a sketch show, which was one. And I can't remember what happened to that. But then it became a film script, which is called No More Mr. Nice Guy. And that wasn't filmed either. So I stole it and put it in a book, another book called Go West. So obviously quite fond of it as a scene. Go West was your second self-published novel. That's right, with Unbound. That's right. You self-published another novel prior to that called The Mule, but you'd written three other unpublished novels before then. Can you tell us about those? Is it three? Yeah, there was one called... I can't remember the names of them, to be honest. I'd written one called Sparks, which I now put up as an e-novel, and The Bitterness Diaries, and there's another one, and I can't remember the name of it. It had a brilliant name, a really long, funny name, but I've completely forgotten it, so maybe there's a lesson in that. But yeah, I... I'd always wanted to be a writer of novels and had always failed considerably in doing this. But by doing the Unbound book, The Mule, and it got good reviews, which I was surprised about, gave me a bit of confidence. And now I write novels for money that aren't self-published and hopefully we'll be doing more of that. So it just goes to show, keep doing it and find someone who will help you publish your book and maybe it will happen. And novel writing is quite a long and slow process, though. How are you about self-discipline? Do you find it quite easy to motivate yourself? 
Yeah, people always think that people who work from home just watch Neighbours all day. Um, nah, Neighbours is rubbish. So I'm quite good at self-discipline. Also, I write very quickly, so it's only about three hours a day. And if you can't work for three hours a day, then you should probably see a doctor, to be honest. But it's just, it is just getting it done. And it's like, when I do writing talks, sometimes I do a thing where I talk about start off, write a joke, one line, then write a long joke, one paragraph, then write a sketch, a page, then write a script, 30 pages, then write a movie, 90 pages, and then write a novel, which is like 200 plus. And it's quite a good way to do it. You just build up. And when I start writing in the morning, if I'm doing a lot of different things, I might literally write a joke on Twitter. Then I might write a review for a rock paper because I still do that. And then I, I just go on from there. So do you work on more than one project at a time? If I've got more than one project, yeah, because I do lots of different jobs. They're all to do with writing, but that's why I wrote a book called How to Write Everything, because it occurred to me that unlike some of my contemporaries, I do write everything. You know, I do reviews and I do radio scripts and TV scripts and I write fiction books and non-fiction books. So it's all writing, you know, the idea that these things are all different. And you but are you able to switch between the two disciplines quite easily? Yeah, it's it's all writing, so it's not that they're not that different. And for someone who's spent much of his career writing with a partner or in teams, when you're writing alone, what do you do for feedback? Do you need it? Or who do you trust to show your work to? I'll show it to my wife afterwards, or if or if I'm trying to sell a book, then I'll show it to an agent or an editor. But by and large, it's like a book is interesting because while they're quite long, they're very focused. So I know what and no one's asking me to write a book, so I tend to write the book that I want, which means I tend to know why I'm writing it and what's going to happen. And also, I've been writing for years. It doesn't mean you're good, although I am, but it just means that you do know stuff. You know, with any job, you should be able to do it. And it's like, if you're driving a delivery van, you tend not to ask people's advice. You know, should I turn left or right here? You just do it. And then when you've done it, you ask for help, which is more... Can you make what I've done even better? Time for another offcut. Tell us about this one. Yeah, this is a treatment for a TV series, which I wrote, the treatment, not the series, in 2017, called Shit Gibbon. I'm sick of tongue-in-cheek satire and ironic comedy, twee placards on marches and hipster protest. I'm fucked off with people saying, how can you satirise the news when it's all so crazy? Surrealism and rage, that's how. A bit of anger and a bit of imagination. No more sketches and no more celebrity impressions. It's not harder to mock Donald Trump, it's easier. Jesus, if you can take the piss out of Gordon Brown, you can certainly have a go at Trump. And Farage, and May, and Corbyn, and Le Pen, and Kim Jong-il, and every other mad, stupid, evil, wrong fucker in the news. Of course, it helps if you give a shit. Welcome then to Shitgibbon. Shitgibbon is named after something I said in a script, which some senator nicked and said to Donald Trump. He called him a shitgibbon. I'm quite happy about that. Shitgibbon is a rude word. Oh, well, let's call it gibbon, if that's a problem. Or not. Things in shitgibbon. Me. All great political comedy is presented by a man in glasses who's not as good as Jon Stewart. I'm a good presenter, I'm a fine writer, and I sound funny when I'm angry because of my accent. I'll be sitting behind the desk mocking tossers and introducing people who know what they're talking about. Lots of women, black people, 
I believe in positive discrimination, especially against two-man comedy writing duos called Tim and Tom. New people from the internet who've got one joke, but we can encourage to have two jokes. No impressionists, no celebrity jokes, no sketches. There'll be regular features. Of course there will. Troll bingo, where we find the troll with the most clichés. Internet of the week, where we pick on some cock who's gone all out to outrage the world with some inanity. Fake news baby, a feature where we examine the best fake news of the week. Some of shit gibbon will be angry. In fact, all of it will be, making it like nothing else on TV. Some of it will be wrong, but it'll be funny. All of it will be. Shit gibbon. No irony, plenty of iron. Well, that's quite a confrontational piece. What kind of a response did you get to it? Ah, uh, none. None at all? No one ever said anything about it. That's that's the nature of show business. Yeah, it was a bit annoying. That the nearest thing, well, the only thing that came out of it was I got some meetings working on somebody else's show, a uh, television, political, media, comedy commentator who nobody likes, so nothing came of that. But that's the nature of it, and I'd like to do a strong, vicious satire programme. But bizarrely, as the world gets worse, there seem to be fewer and fewer strongly satirical shows and the formats are quite dull. So, yeah, got to get a load of work off the back of this interview. (laughs) Well, up to now, we haven't really mentioned your parallel career as a performer presenter because you're a regular pundit on TV. You've had your own radio series, as we mentioned, as well as uh, The Blagger's Guides on Radio 2, which ran for 10 years. And uh, more recently, you had three series of your Radio 4 show, 52 First Impressions. Have you always had ambitions to perform? I used to do acting at school, but um, I can't act. I like I like presenting and doing stuff. I do believe that I discovered when I worked on The Fast Show that a really good way to get your stuff on television is to perform it yourself because TV commissioners often forget who people are and don't understand that writers exist. So if you're a writer who performs, they can remember your face and your voice a lot more easily. Um, but I'm not a massive talent in that direction. So I tended to do sort of factual comedy-based stuff. I like doing it. I'd like to do it again. I don't currently have an idea in that direction. And yeah, so one day, maybe I will. But I'd have to have an idea first. And at the moment, I don't have that burning idea when I could be doing other stuff. Did you ever do stand-up? I did stand up for an article once for a men's magazine. And yeah, my first gig, I won a small comedy competition. My second gig, I was booed off stage and people shouted and swore at me and almost threw things. I remember a woman actually paused in the eating of her dinner to shout at me as I left the venue. Wow. Um, I don't think I'd be a good stand up. I think I might have good material, but I'm not naturally that funny. Also, I'd get bored telling the same joke every night. Would you ever write yourself an acting part, do you think? No, I don't think I'm a very good actor at all. And, I mean, because I've been on clip shows, I don't want somebody going, I know him, oh, he's familiar, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. So given a choice, would you write for yourself, because you know your voice so well, or would you prefer to write for other performers or create new characters? Um, I just, I don't really mind. I mean... If I wrote a film script, I wouldn't be in that, but I'd be absolutely happy if that film script was made. And if I wrote a novel, um, I'd be totally happy if I controlled every aspect of that. My ego is basically satisfied by seeing my name on things. And after that, I'm pretty happy. 
I tend to go around telling people I wrote that sketch, which annoys the other writers on the shows. <laughs> but yeah, so I've got a fairly massive ego, but not so big that I have to control every aspect of, of a project. Right. Time for our final off cut. Can you tell us what this is, please? Yes. Uh, this is called Other People. And it's a short story that I wrote last year. In that land, they had their own notion of heaven, the traveller was told. And it was like this. When someone dies, everyone who has ever loved them comes to a great hall and sits around a table and they talk about the person who died. Obviously, some people, who were great or famous or just well-liked, would attract a large group of loved ones, and thus a very big table would be needed, whereas for others, who were not great or famous or liked, a small table would suffice. The shape of the table did not matter either, because there was no one needed to sit at the head of it, nor did it need to be round particularly, as that assumed a discussion where everyone had an equal amount of things to say. Do not, the traveller was told, get hung up on the table. It's just a table. Nor was the amount of chairs important. Even though each chair reflected one person who had known the dead, it was not considered significant if the dead person had had many friends in life or many supporters or subjects or employees. What mattered, it seems, was what was said. And not everything said was always good. The truth was valued more than eulogies. But we do not just value the truth, said one. We appreciate a lie if it is told with love. And he went on to recount the tale of a mother whose son had been a thief and had in fact been killed when he fell off a roof while robbing a shop. The mother told everyone that her son had been a good man who always thought of others and this obvious untruth had been well received. Because, said one, every statement, whether a lie or not, if sincere, adds to the picture. The picture of the dead one, said the traveller. The picture of how others saw the dead one, she was told. Of course, some can have had no friends to speak of, no loved ones, because they hardly lived to be loved. But this, too, is taken into consideration. And then, when the accounts are given, the dead one is not judged, but is considered accounted for. Their life has been noted, and, if it is not found lacking, in love from others, in any degree of affection, then the dead one may go on. And where they go to, and what happens there, we hope will be influenced by the accounts given of them. The traveller nodded. She had made her decision already. She was weary of travelling and had decided to spend her remaining years with these people. When her time came, a large table was brought into the Great Hall. So what's the story behind this piece? Um, well, the first thing is that I have a website now. I resisted websites for years because I believe that if you put things up, you should get paid for them. But I started writing quite a lot of stuff and I thought it might be fun to write short stories so every month I post a short story on my website, which is a good discipline and a good way of writing stuff and writing quick stuff. And this, this story was inspired by, there'd been, well, there'd been quite a lot of death around it, me and my life. And so I was thinking about death and mortality and what people mean to you and friendship. And that inspired this, which is not as bleak as it sounds. 
And you're inspired to publish loads of different types of stories on your website. There's a good mix of material on there. Yeah, I mean, they're mostly to do vaguely with horror or science fiction, but some of them are comedy. I just It's just when an idea comes into your head and you can't be bothered to write it into a full-length script or novel, because sometimes they shouldn't be that long anyway. It's just fun things to do, get the idea out there. And it's a nice challenge. I mean, I've been doing it for nearly three years now, so that's over 35 stories. Have you found that it's actually led to more work for you? Because giving away content is a very modern business marketing strategy. We're all told to do that these days. Does it actually work for writers as well? Um, I'm, because I'm old, I very, I'm very reluctant to give content away for free. Um, people are welcome to read these stories and download them. But at one point, I do hope to revise them and publish them or sell them to other formats. And if that happens, give me money. Right. Well, your future projects include a theatre musical of the TV sitcom The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin and, as you mentioned earlier, a second series of HBO TV series Avenue um, Avenue 5. I keep thinking wanted to call it Avenue Q. Yes, don't confuse them. Though they've both got swearing in. They have, but no puppets in Avenue 5. Um, so looking back on your writing career to date, you have covered most genres now. Are there any writing challenges left on your to-do list, genre-wise? Oh, I'm sure there's loads of things to do. Get some things made would be nice. I haven't actually had a lot of films or TV shows made. Um, just keep going, just keep doing more stuff. And I definitely don't want to write a verse drama. I will be avoiding that. A verse drama, as in a drama in verse. Yeah, that's a thing I won't be doing. Well, me and the general public thank you in advance for that. <laughs> uh, final question. Having revisited these old bits of writing, how do you feel about them? Were you surprised by any of them? Do you feel like you've changed much since you've written any of them? Uh, I think it just shows that you change all the time. And yeah, I think my kind of comedy remains the same. A bit of surrealism, a bit of extremism a lot of incoherence. <laughs> so I think some of it is better than others, but mostly it's just, it's weird. It's just kind of a cross section of who you were at the time. It's like remembering what you did in 1982, whether it was go on holiday, jump off a cliff or write a sketch. So for me, it's more like that. It's sort of like snapshots, which is a cliche, but a very true one. David Quantic, thank you for opening your virtual bottom drawer and sharing your offcuts with us. Thank you, Laura. I'm glad you said the word drawer. <laughs> the Offcuts Draw was devised and presented by me, Laura Shavin, with special thanks to this week's guest, David Quantic. The Offcuts were performed by Rachel Atkins, Beth Chalmers, Alex Lowe, Chris Pavlo, and Keith Wickham. And the music was by me. For more details about the show, visit offcutstraw.com and please do subscribe, rate and review us. Thanks for listening. Music